Hello and welcome back to our Job Bible study series. Tonight we are going to be going over Job chapter 15, but first we will start off with Psalm 1. As is customary for whenever Job's friends speak, they speak with a distillation of God's holy law. And they speak in theological terms that most of the Bible agrees with. So if you have a Bible handy open to help us interpret Scripture with Scripture, we read from Psalm 1. Hear the word of our Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And before we get to our chapter, to help us interpret scripture with scripture, since we are about to hear one of Job's friends speaking, let us hear what our Lord God says about Job's friends. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, this is Job chapter 42, beginning in the seventh verse, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly." For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, we turn to Job chapter 15, in which Eliphaz, the Temanite, the man whom God just now, we read God addressing him and saying, You were so off base that I want you to make a burnt offering and propitiation to soothe my anger towards you. Eliphaz is going to speak. Job has now spent three chapters or so responding to his friends. He is blown up and decided, fine, I'm going to address you. You are all not nearly as wise as you think you are, and I'm going to address God. I'm going to unzip my lips and let my complaint fly forward. And so he does. And Eliphaz, as we read the 15th chapter, we can almost imagine him trying to speak these words with mouth agape. Let us hear the word of our Lord. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God, and hindering meditation before God. 
For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened to the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the comforts of God too small for you, or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away, and why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman, that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no stranger passed among them. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days, through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness, and he is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle, because he has not he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield, because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist, and has lived in desolate cities and houses that none should inhabit, which were ready to become heaps of ruins. He will not be rich, and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry up his shoots, and by the breath of his mouth he will depart. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. It will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like the vine, and cast off his blossom like the olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. I want everybody listening to this, whether on the live stream or on SoundCloud, and if people are listening on SoundCloud, if you want to get in on the live stream, please email me, very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com. I want you to memorize a phrase. That is so incredibly important for what I believe is happening here, but it's something that will happen to every Christian who earnestly desires to love his neighbor as himself. And that phrase is compassion fatigue. We lionize our heroes. We lionize the nurses, the soldiers, the firefighters, uh, some people see police officers as heroes. And while all of these groups have their stains in their behavior, they have sometimes earned a bad reputation. By and large, anybody from teachers to nurses to soldiers, etc., uh, they're treated like heroes in our society. Especially if they are compassionate towards others. 
However, whenever one of these individuals in any one of these professions starts getting frustrated at their job, we cease to lionize them. We think of them as doing a bad job. If somebody is a loving and heroic therapist who has brought people from the brink of suicide, if they have helped countless people in their lives to straighten up, get off of drugs, quit their porn addiction, quit their smoking addiction, this therapist is a hero. The moment he starts yelling at one of his patients and everybody in the ward can hear it, suddenly we all think of that man as a despicable villain for it. We lose any love or admiration that we had for him because he is suffering compassion fatigue and all of us instinctually think that's not supposed to happen. I believe that that is what Eliphaz the Temanite is feeling as he starts to openly condemn Job. His previous words have been conciliatory. He gave a gentle law and gospel speech to Job. Just trust in God. He can make this right. And if there's something in your past that you did, it's okay. Just go to him and confess it. And you can rely on him to deliver you. But now his tone changes. We see in the first verse, Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, not this time, not just spoke to Job. Oh no, he's over that. He spent seven days starving himself half to death, sitting with his friend, showing him compassion and wailing and weeping for him. But now he has spent a long time listening to Job just bring complaint after complaint to God. And he says, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? For those who might not be familiar with the term, the east wind is a wind of blight. It is desolation inflicted upon a land. The east wind kills crops. The east wind drives cattle to run away. The east wind is terrible. So Eliphaz is telling Job, you're, you're answering with windy knowledge. Oh, you're speaking a lot, airbag. But... It's the east wind. You're breathing in nothing but desolation as you speak to me. Do you understand that? He's frustrated. Should he argue in unprofitable talk, verse 3, or in words with which he can do no good? You're wasting your time. What do you think this is going to accomplish here? I'm fed up. You are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. We can say that Eliphaz gets it wrong. I've spent two or three recordings now defending Job's harsh-sounding words. Job points his finger at God and says, What on earth are you doing? And we've defended that. But in the moment, and anybody that's undergone compassion fatigue can understand this, you care about somebody, you care about their soul, you care about their heart, and they start sounding like they are teetering on that edge of apostasy and despair and turning their heart to darkness. So while Job clearly does still fear God, he has reassured his friends in the 14th chapter that he still trusts in God. 
And he's asked God, can I please hear from you what it is I did, what it is that's wrong, it still sounds to Eliphaz, and likely to Bildad and Zophar, like Job is just casting off all restraint here, and he's this close. Just pinch your fingers together, just this close to blaspheming and earning death. So Eliphaz warns him, you're doing away with the fear of God. This is the Almighty you're talking about here. He can destroy you. Why on earth do you let your tongue loose like this? Your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. We suggested that maybe you had sinned earlier, but now with the kind of way you're talking to us and to God, clearly there is a sin that you're hiding here, and it has only made things worse. So he says, your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Verse 6. Your own lips testify you against you. Does a godly man speak like this? Now maybe Eliphaz understands, at the bottom of his heart, that yes, if you go through something like Job did, in order to keep yourself steadfast in the Lord, you can scream and shout at God. You don't accuse him of wrongdoing. You do not blaspheme the God, but you can just let it loose. And God will be there to listen because you're treating God personally, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. But in that moment, we can sympathize with Eliphaz a little bit for saying, Look, godly men don't talk this way. If you have a lot of sin, then your words here are revealing it. So verse 7, are you the first man who was born? You've been talking a lot about your righteousness, your blamelessness, and your wisdom, how you're just as educated as us, Job. Put your hands together. You're a saint. But really? Do you really know everything? Are you the first one? And here, Eliphaz is not wrong to ask this question. What does our Lord God ask Job over and over again when God finally speaks in chapters 38 through 41? Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I uh, played around with these giant animals? Where were you when I set the boundary of the sea? Eliphaz asks the same question to Job here. Are you the first man who was born? Or were you bought, brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? Okay, know-it-all. Do you really get what you're saying here? And do you really think that this is the answer? That there was some mistake and you got to make your case before God? Don't you think he has a reason for this? Verse 9. What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. There has been an appeal before this to basically theology itself. This is the first book of the Bible to be written. They didn't have Psalm 1 to go off of, but that doesn't mean that they uh, lacked any sort of revelation, that they lacked revelation from God. They had some sort of special revelation that had been passed down from father to son. What writing they did have, they were writing it down, and they were bringing this all out. And he's saying, Eliphaz is right here saying, listen, I'm relying on that. 
I'm relying on revelation. What are you relying on? Because I've got men older than your father, you old coot, that are going to tell you that you're wrong. If you think you're learned and aged, I've got old guys out here that can tell me just how right I am. What about you? Are the comforts of God too small for you? Or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away, and why do your eyes flash, and that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? I spoke to you gently. I gave you the comforts of God. Uh, listen, law and gospel is supposed to work on the heart. This should have helped you. And all good Lutherans, we, we nod our head at Eliphaz. After all, we've learned law and gospel counseling. We've learned how sermons are supposed to work. And this should have worked. But Job is so stubborn, this must mean that he is an impenitent sinner, right? All good Lutherans, of course, waving our hands and clapping like baby seals. So he says, how come you're being so stubborn? Why aren't you listening to me or to these other two friends? Is it too small for you? Is forgiveness too little a thing for you right now? You want the world and you're willing to destroy the world to get it? What is man that he can be pure? You're a sinner. Don't pretend you're not. We might note that Job did say that he had sinned in his youth. Job does not hide from that fact. But his words, his tone, his attitude suggest to Eliphaz something like a substantive denial that he had sinned. And this is, again, I can't stress this enough. Eliphaz still cares about Job. If you have somebody that you don't care about and they are making a fool of themselves, if they are speaking out of the misery of their heart and you don't care about them, you don't stick around to give these speeches to them. You don't get frustrated that your acts of compassion aren't working. Eliphaz, and likely the other two friends, it seems to me they are undergoing compassion fatigue. He keeps going. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. Here you are licking your wounds, and you're just drinking all this down, Job. And you expect an answer from God. You expect him to come down from his throne, and you expect him to just lay it all out for you and defend himself as though he owes you something. But listen, God doesn't even trust his angels with all knowledge. That's true, by the way. Did God explain to the rest of the host of heaven what he was doing in the divine wager against Satan? He did not. He didn't lay all this out. God operates on his own motives. And if, it, if the angels aren't even entrusted to these sorts of secrets, how much less Job sitting there scraping the blisters off his skin with a potsherd? Oh, God will answer. Eliphaz doesn't understand that quite yet until he hears God's voice. But it is true that God doesn't have to give us an answer. He does not owe it to us. And God's answer might sound unsatisfying to us. We might be tempted to say that Eliphaz is correct, that Job won't receive an answer. But God does indeed give an answer, as we will see when we get to those chapters. But now from the 17th verse, Eliphaz gives us a very scriptural argument. And he says, 
They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. Ah, maybe some of the more perceptive among us here might recognize that I'm reading from Psalm 73 instead. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Asaph, writing in Psalm 73, reflects almost thought for thought what Eliphaz is saying. That the wicked have no security. Verse 20, the wicked man rides in pain all his days, through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. The wicked are fearing things. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness. They understand that there is judgment. He is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Theology will teach you, and scripture will teach you, that those who are wicked, those who hate God, who want nothing to do with him because they want to live life their way, Oh, these men know what's coming to them. Job had previously, in his last speech, spanning three chapters, he looked at God and said, Listen, I can look around and I can see the wicked. They're having a great time. Why am I, the devout believer, Job the pietist, why am I getting squished? Well, all these terrible people that are far worse than I have ever been or ever will be in my life, why are they getting away scot-free? This seems to have bugged Eliphaz. It's irritating him. It's something he would not let go from his mind. So he says, Distress and anguish terrify him. Verse 24. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle. Because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield. Because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist. Yeah, they're fat. They're happy. They're fat, dumb, and happy, but they understand they're going to be judged, Job. You want to bring this up, but there is a final judgment of death for these men. There is punishment for them. And all of us, of course, reading Holy Scripture, we agree. There is damnation for the wicked, for those who don't believe in God, for those who don't put their faith in Him, for those who are not penitent believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how great of a time they have here on earth, one suspects it's because they don't belong to God. He disciplines his family, not people that are going to end up burning forever. Eliphaz speaks this way, correcting Job. At least in his own mind, he's looking at this and saying true things. Job, you think there's injustice with God, but you don't know the ultimate fate of the wicked. And you don't know what's going on in their mind to destroy them like this. What does that tell us about what Eliphaz is saying? It tells us Eliphaz, though he is frustrated... Though he is undergoing compassion fatigue, 
he does not believe that this applies to Job. He's not calling Job the wicked man destined for destruction. This is a warning. When he says that he stretched out his hand against, the, against God, defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him, we might be tempted to think that Eliphaz is referring to Job's harsh-sounding words to God. But... He says in verse 30, he will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry up his shoots, and by the breath of his mouth he will depart. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. It will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be green. Thus far he has told Job, you can be restored. Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz have all said, you can go to God for mercy on this. You can be restored. It doesn't have to be this way. What Eliphaz is saying is, you're charging God with injustice. At least it sounds that way. Let me correct you on that because justice is coming for those men. And I care about you. I don't want you to be that man. Verse 34, for the company of the godless is barren and fire consumes the tent uh, tents of bribery they conceive trouble and give birth to evil and their womb prepares deceit eliphaz knew job he knew him for years there's no excuse for claiming that job had committed a bribe there's no excuse to claim that well oh you're you're barren you're godless there's no hope there's no saving you that's not what eliphaz is saying here Instead, he gives him a warning out of the fatigue of his heart that cares about his friend, saying, I know you sinned, and I don't want you ending up like those guys. You got this all wrong the same way they got all this wrong. You need to turn around. You need to correct the way you've been speaking about this. Now, like we mentioned in the beginning, Eliphaz is, of course incorrect in what he says about Job. He's incorrect to charge his friend with sin as the cause of what Job has gone through. His children dying, his cattle being stolen and dying, his servants dying, losing his home, being covered in painful sores and blisters. It is not on account of a certain sin that Job had committed that would result in this. But Eliphaz being somebody who basically is writing Bible before the Bible was written. Somebody whose talking points are cited by other writers of Holy Scripture should be respected by us, by the believer reading this, A, for the correct things that he says, and B, for continuing as best as he can at this point to show love to his friend Job. But next week we will see whether Job responds in kind, whether he understands what Eliphaz is saying, or whether he has a response to it that is maybe a little bit more cutting through Eliphaz's frustrations. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen. <laughs>